everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. What does paying your taxes, taking your sibling to the doctor, and honoring your workplace's code of conduct have in common? A lack of fun. <laughs> so why do we do them? Well, there will be a different answer for each scenario, but the uniting thread is that in each case, we are obligated to fulfill our role. <clears throat> so, <laughs> yeah, just just kind of a, a, you know, a funny joke there at the beginning, but we'll get into that a little bit later on. Obligation, <laughs> you know, why are obligations not usually something that's very fun? <laughs> when you know it, you know that when you hear parents use that word, there are certain things that parents sooner or later appears in the vocabulary. No, you can't go to this tonight. You have obligations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You hear that the first time. <laughs> An obligation is just a <laughs> verbal version of a wet blanket. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's my uh, sort of succinct um, uh, you know, anecdotal explanation. But what is an obligation um, formally? Well, if you go to the etymology of it, it used to mean an engagement of of a kind or a pledging in the Latin. And then it started in the 1300s, 1400s to accrue. We always talk about this. Wait a minute, how does a word accrue these meanings? Well, we use it. Yeah. And we use it enough in a certain way, and people start saying, oh, that's what it means. Yeah. It's a strange, like, barnacle on a ship. It just doesn't get scraped off. It survives and it grows bigger. Uh, but it eventually became, in, in that time, to be associated with um, a bargain, um, meeting conditions, um, a binding of a kind. And so it, it wasn't initially a binding, but that, that, that accrued to it in times medieval. And then it became more uh, litigious, legalistic. Which is all very nice to hear, but we but we know that there are different kinds, as you said at the very, at the beginning. Uh, of there, there, there are internal obligations and external obligations. There are intrinsic obligations and extrinsic obligations. Um, there are yeah, not irreversible but uh, unignorable <laughs> obligations contractually based obligations and then there are the unstated ones yeah i love going over the etymologies because like you were just saying so like in the in obligation the word you know it's it's meaning has changed subtly you know it started out as, as pledge or whatever whereas other words we've looked at um in some cases that what they mean now doesn't really correlate with what the the original version of the word meant yeah, right and so yeah it, I think that if at, if at any point in history it was it's easy to see how words take on different meanings it is now, right? I mean, because you think about five years ago, if you said the word fire, you were talking about a, a physical fire. But now the word has been used so much to mean something that's cool or you know, <laughs> attractive that 
there's a good chance that maybe several decades from now, fire um, takes on a, a completely different meaning from what it. What yeah, it does. the ephemera of 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 popular usage. Uh, things froth around and then they settle, and some things don't. Some things just evaporate and and stay, and and then you get into the 1600s, late 1600s, and it seems that the idea of gratitude started being associated with obligation. And, and so you can see not, not terribly hard jump from that to 150 or 200 years later when we think we, that we have this notion from Westerns <laughs> of where people will say much obliged. Hmm. Well, um, to be uh, obliged is to be obligated. Hmm. Yeah. So showing gratitude at the same time as saying, I owe you. Right. <clears throat> yeah. So that's, it's really interesting that you brought gratitude into it. Cause I was, um, in the course of my studies this week, watching some videos, um, talking about positive psychology and how a lot of the, a lot of the, the themes that are studying positive psychology and gratitude is a big one. Um, a lot of them originate from, religious conceptions um in some ways and and so if gratitude and obligation are linked you know does religion come into it and we'll cover that in a, mm -hmm. in a little bit um but yeah we'll start with have have philosophers addressed obligation much in the past yeah uh, packaged with uh, larger or related concepts a duty and certainly, uh, yeah, so when we talk about duty ethics, then obligation is, even if it isn't stated constantly, it's built into that. And that goes back a long way. Uh, so, yes. So, if some listeners are thinking, well, okay, so obligation, duty, what, what's the difference between the two of them? How would, how would the philosophers have described that? A duty is something that has been established formally. Again, there, there are various kinds. Let's, let's go with the exterior first. If, if I join the military, I'm told that these are the things that I must do. And I can't just leave without there being consequences. <laughs> is that accurate? Yeah. Right. <clears throat> it's true of a company. If I contractually bind myself into a company, then there are upfront things that I am saying that I will accept as requirements, uh, duties. But then other things show up that you never anticipated, and that's a little bit grayer because somebody might say, "I well, that was part of why we hired you and you I'd say, no, that was never particularly stated. So in a formal ex exterior, extrinsic duty, one usually requires a contract of some kind or other. That, and so it's a, it's a, and signing that contract is the, the binding. Yeah. Yeah, when I was, when I was looking into it, um, from what I was sort of piecing together, it seemed like... Um, 
an obligation is what you're you're trying to accomplish and and duty is sort of your response to an obligation mm-hmm. um so you know in a workplace right you're you're obligated to um show up to work on time and then that means it's your duty to um make sure you leave with enough time make sure that you anticipate things you might run into or if you're obligated to make a hundred parts a day then it's your duty to sort of pace yourself and and make sure you have enough materials and do these sorts of right and if i'm if i'm yeah if i'm going to be going to work then i have a duty to tend myself in such a way that i am uh, of awake (laughs) and in a condition that I'm able to do the job. Yeah. So, so the obligation is kind of the, the goal or what you're, you're obligated to do. And then your duty is the execution of it. It creates a really um, interesting question with companies who have formed unions, right? Because if you, if you think about it, so a company is obligated workers are obligated to do something that that furthers a company's goals. And then the employee's duty is to meet those obligations. But there's times throughout history where employer, where employees say, I'm not going to execute these duties. And then employers um, renegotiate or the employees organize. And there's a redefinition of, of what the duties are, but, in many cases, the obligations remain the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that creates this uh, complexity. Like, so duty and obligation are, you know, inextricably linked. But at the same time, duty can be negotiated with obligation remaining the same. Yes, it can. And that's, that, that's a very fair parsing that you just did, which takes us back to question the idea of of balance on both sides of the binding. And often employers are not interested in a fair or equitable balance. And that's why unions get formed in order to, as you say, to negotiate the duty so that it becomes more humane in in and of itself, but then also within the construct of the larger society in which that job at that time is being done. Yeah. So much like we've talked about in previous episodes with um, stories, right? Campbellian's story arcs. Mm -hmm. Um, It's tempting to see things as having a a closed circuit beginning and end, but duty and obligation does not work that way. So just because you're a worker and the company has obligations and you have a duty to the company. You have other duties. You have duties to your family and, and to society. Special, and, to and, and some of them are called special obligations because you go above and beyond. Um, those obligations may clash with other obligations. Right. And so that that would change from company to company, right? Like, so you always see in pop culture, the, the crusty old vet on the police force who who's always... It's his duty to do something. And so he, he has no family life. He has no, he's basically a shell of a human being, but he's, he's the best darn <laughs> cop that there is because he always lives up to his obligations. Right. Um, 
And so this idea of having obligations to things other than your job and having duties to those obligations um, complicates that picture quite a bit. So I guess the, the next natural question would be, what creates an obligation? That's the fascinating part. Some people would argue that this is peripheral indicator of, or if not proof of, a conscience. That you have Jiminy Cricket in your head saying, well, I said I'd do this job, so now I need to do it. And if I don't, then I should be kicking myself, or I should be embarrassed, or I, I, I now have a new duty, which is to withdraw myself from something that I said that I would do if I don't want to. <laughs> I never should have said it in the first place. So then we got another kick from the conscience saying, then why did you do that? It's very psychological. Absolutely. And so um, as I'm doing my doctoral studies and I'm leaning towards um, res- being a consciousness research, right? Researcher. Um, this pops up quite a bit. And an interesting tidbit for the listeners out there is that in researching consciousness and looking at language, what you find out is that in Greek and, and Latin, some of these other languages, there was no word for consciousness um, as early as 1,500, 2,000 years ago, hmm. which creates very interesting implications for um, Julian Jaynes' theory, which is one of my, my favorite yeah, books, yeah. just from a, a storytelling aspect of humanity. But, um, but even more interesting is that so the word for consciousness doesn't exist until fairly recently in human history, but the word conscience does. So you have conscience before consciousness. consciousness. And yeah, what does that say about um, obligations and duties and things? We're, we're suggesting, aren't we, that there's something outside that has put them into us. I mean, yeah. that, that's that's where some of the, the, the sociological back backfilling would, would occur. Uh, so, well, we have a conscience. Well, who gave us a conscience? Well, we could say we evolved one, but there would be people saying, no, that's that's what you get when you're created. I mean, yeah. You're not going to prove that, but it, but it is right. interesting that, that it, it predates consciousness. And so we look to nature, right? I was reading an interesting article yesterday about the, the headline of the article was, Who Runs the World? Ants. <laughs> Ants are a really good example of this, right? Ants, if you think about ants' consciousness, probably very, very limited. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you think about conscience or something that tells them what their obligations are and what their duty is to fulfill those obligations, it's almost the strictest, most regimented, very um, tactile version of this concept right you see ants that will willingly just turn their body into a raft so other ants can walk across the water mm-hmm. or turn their bodies into a bridge or defend their their colony and or, do they have a, a bridge uh chromosome do they have right. a, do they have a climb chromo- I mean, it's fascinating so again you know looking at hume or looking at uh, animals to sort of fill in these gaps. Why would we have a word for conscience before consciousness? Um, you know, then you look at nature and you see ants who have a low level of consciousness, but appear to have um, this this in 
in you know ingrained sense of what their their duties and obligations are it tells you that this idea of obligation is built a lot deeper into the brain's structure you know this isn't yeah. this isn't a prefrontal cortex thing no. this isn't this isn't so much to do with decisions or or conscious thinking um it's it's a lot further back into that autonomous system we have yeah. this built deep deeply into our our dna which which would indicate that it has an, an incredibly necessary use right because it's not an appendix kind of thing yeah yeah <laughs> it's it's and, and its use is multifold it, 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 because we well let's see we have we can argue that we have political social obligations we have we have special obligations uh, we have self obligations and that goes back to what I mentioned before about going to, well, if I take on a job, then I have an obligation. Or even if I don't take on a job, if if I'm in a relationship with somebody, I have an obligation to keep myself as um, healthy as I can. Don't I? And and then you might say, well, no, I don't. I I don't care. I'm just going to go to pot. <laughs> I'm just going to go to seed. I, I, but what about those people who may? need my um, help or presence what about those people who may want my help or presence and none am i supposed to care about that but i do care about that that's built in there somewhere and and so and then when people don't care about that or stop caring about that then we get worried about those people so all these levels yeah and so this this question what creates an obligation mm. it becomes very interesting right because i think that and that part that you just mentioned um you know it, it's a family right and yeah. you're you're part of this family let's say you're the father in, in a family right you say okay i have an obligation to maintain my physical health maintain my mental acuity to you know have you know be emotionally supportive um, yep. be able to solve problems mentally have the physical capacity to be able to help out my children these sorts of things but then nature has it built in that at some point you're going to die and that your children are going to need to have those the tools of emotional, mental, and physical strength to carry on yeah. without you. And so what does that mean for the initial obligation, right? So did, does the obligation end at some point? Does your obligation uh, to be the father, the paternal figure, to provide that level of mo emotional, mental, and, and physical support, does it end at some point? Does it change over time? Are obligations able it, to change? We talked changes. about duty changing with yeah. obligations staying the same. But can obligations change with duties remaining the same? Can the, the reverse be true, do you think? I, if I have a... Uh, uh, an obligation to in to carry out my my best interpretations which which are often up for interpretation because of changes of years in life uh, I have an obligation to be the best father I can well that sounds already well and good but then you have to get in the definition of what does that mean and you just listed some of those things but that's that's that means being able to change because my adult children do not need me to tell them <laughs> to go to school today, right? Or, and they didn't even need me to do that, but they, but they, 
but children need you to provide food and to guide through food and give options and millions of things, right? But, but those, of course, change as, as they grow and become adult themselves. They don't need dad in the same ways. So do you think, do you think that's a change in the obligation or a change in the duties? So if you say, my obligation is to be a good father. If that's the obligation, then that might be able to be steady state. But the duties of fulfilling that obligation might change as a child develops. Do you agree uh, with you that said. position or do you think that the obligation itself might change over time? I think it depends. I, I, well, it depends on how we define what we mean by obligation. We're back to that again. So, in the most general sense, I would go with your first statement that the duties change. Our perception of the duties change. Uh, the, the, the adult children assert that the duties need to change sometimes when you're going through that transition from teenhood into, you know, that they are changing people. I'm a changing person. But within that, even those, those, those duties change. But, uh, but one still embraces happily the obligation. There's some obligations that we don't find happy. You said before, they're like wet blankets. Um, fatherhood is not that. <laughs> um, many, many things are not, not wet blankets. Yeah. So still looking at this question, what creates mm. an obligation? Start with the, start with the, um, start with the most outward and let's work. I sign a contract. I choose to sign a contract, whether it's a, or I deliver a vow, wedding vow, or uh, even pre-wedding, an engagement. That's a, that's a vow of a kind. It may might change. One one hopes that the conditions are that it won't. Nobody would want to. Uh, so the external is a sense of owing. And, and so if, if I'm, if I'm doing something for you, even though we, we don't say this explicitly necessarily, we don't even necessarily feel it for many things. Um, we're sort of hinting at, uh, I owe you one or you owe me one. <laughs> but if we just keep maintaining the obligation, we don't owe each other anything because we're already paying that obligation day by day, week by week. Okay. Throughout life. So yeah, so back to the etymology, the original version is a pledge, yeah. but then it develops into a bargain. Do you yeah. think that that distinction is important in determining what an obligation is? I do, because I, I think it, it reflects the this sociological um, constructs, uh, reflects economics, a sense of economy. I mean, what, what I think quite probably when, even before it was named an obligation, uh, is something that emerges out of a, a contingent situation or a, a, a rapidly developing situation. Um, I need you, uh, and therefore I'm going to do what I can to make sure that you understand that I need you, but that you might need me too. Uh, we're going to fight off this tiger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that it's. I think that it's really important because if you think about that first definition, a pledge. If you take the bargain aspect out of it, I think that that is where 
the religious aspect of it almost comes in. You're basically saying it's almost idealized, right? Or you're saying, okay, this thing has something that I'm willing to um, contribute to. Yeah. And there's not implicitly built into it a reciprocity. Right. But a, with a bargain, there is, right? Yes. I'm going to put, I'm going to do something for you. And then in exchange, you're going to do something for me. So, and I, I'm going to immediately take that back. Religiosity is the wrong term, right? Because <laughs> religiosity is, there is reciprocity, right? You say that you're going to commit yourself to a religion. And then the, the bargain is that you're, you're going to get to live forever or something is going to happen, right? Probably fatherhood might be the, the better one because um, if you're a parent, right? Um, that's a pledge, right? I'm going to do the best I can to raise you. But if the child... Um, grows up and ends up being a serial killer or something terrible. You still love them. You know, you're not you're not expecting something back. It's great if you get something back, right? If they grow up to be a great kid. But the outcome of of your duty, your obligation, um, doesn't affect the pledge that you make to the child. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump off from that because. Um, there, I encountered uh, a physician this this year. Um, in my my father's circumstances, not mine, but it was a very interesting situation because uh, when I met the, uh, one of my dad's physicians, uh, and my dad introduced me because he wanted me to be there for the, and and the doctor said to him, "This is why we have children, so that they will take care of us in our old age." Hmm. And my, I've never been good at playing poker. And my eyes must have been at least teacup size saucers, <laughs> if not full dinner plates. <laughs> and, 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 and I, and I, and I said, no, that's not about, that's not the bargain. And, and, and my father looked at me and sort of smiled because he, he smiled because he's used to me doing this kind of thing. And the doctor was, of what? And, and no, sir, we don't have children uh, so that we can make sure they take care of us. That's that's an economic interpretation that I refuse. It, uh, it, it I find it distasteful. I, I don't want my children to take care of me if they end up making decisions to help in my care uh, at, at end of life. Um, I will of course appreciate as i appreciate whatever they offer but that is not why we have children all right we don't have children so that we can have social security at the end of our lives and i hear so many people say this i think you know this is a common thing people well we got to have more kids so we can have social security well oh, we got to have more kids so that we can be financially solvent that's an ugly metaphor it's <laughs> yeah and it's it's uniquely human because if you look at nature animals don't just retire or stop doing things right you just work and then and then you end up dying right yeah and so obviously there it you know being human it makes sense to have a safety net for those who who cannot work or can no longer you know pr protecting your vulnerable is is a, a noble um endeavor yeah and so nobility that word there brings in and i think we i talked about doing a whole episode on this we, we did and we so should we, so we should but so when we're we're getting back to creating an obligation, yeah. 
so we we've talked about a little bit we've talked about the the pledge aspect about the bargain aspect which is much more common i think there's very rare instances where you an obligation would be this this original idea of, of pledging it's probably in most cases a bargain there's a, there's an expectation of reciprocity mm-hmm. but with what creates an obligation we actually we have laws right so if if you like you said if you sign a legal document sure. you have an obligation so that creates an obligation there are social obligations that right. are yeah social obligations um with but with a, like a, a child right what creates that obligation is it morality or is it <laughs> is it that just a form of a social obligation like what what other things besides a lo- legally binding document creates well, an obligation I, I, that's a fascinating question because i i even i think i struggle with the idea of obligation in any formal sense when it comes back to to parenting we bring these beings into the world. They didn't sign a contract to come into the world. They didn't ask to be born. They didn't, you know, there, there's no, <laughs> there's, there's no document there. There are, there are legal documents that the one uh, legal expectations and requirements uh, in whichever culture you're in uh, as a parent. So, so I, I, I find that uh, I, I find it really hard because I, I think that's the intrinsic obligation. We we expect one another to be uh, quotation my air quotes uh, good parents, but nobody is is a um, a definer in any ultimate sense what a good parent is this is why people come home from going to walmart or grocery stores and and excoriating the parenting that they saw yeah yeah someone else do and then perhaps forget when they lose their temper oh i just did that didn't i right (laughs) so i'm gonna make it even harder ah good (laughs) (laughs) so i think that an easy way right for a, a philosopher to get around this would be to say well, obligation and duty are human inventions. So they don't actually exist out there. There's no platonic ideal of these things. They're just things that, that human societies constructed. And as a consciousness researcher, right, I'm tempted to think that at some points. Like if I look at examples of feral children, right, um, people who had children and then just locked them in a dark room and didn't interact with them at all. And then somebody rescued them when they were seven years old, right? You think, okay, well, that parent obviously had no obligation to this child. The, the, uh, this obligation, this duty didn't exist. So it, it's it's imaginary, right? It's just something that humans come up with. But, but then I come back to the ants. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and I think, well, ants have duty and obligation. Other creatures in nature, they show this. They demonstrate this, that... Like we're talking about, it's not a prefrontal cortex. We're talking brainstem. We're talking cerebellum. We're talking somewhere deep in the brain. There's this Mm -hmm. idea of Mm -hmm. duty and obligation. There is. So if it's not a human invention, um, but you can look at the case of how people treat children neglectfully or how these other obligations, there seems to be um, obligations can be easily broken, right? Duties can be easily neglected. Well, they can be they can be broken or neglected. I would hesitate to necessarily call it easy or easily. 
because we don't have any real well this is being human we do not know what's going on in somebody else's mind they can report to us what's going on in their mind but is that so and you're as a consciousness person you know, we're totally caught up in this aren't we i mm -hmm. We can present ourselves any number of ways, but we know that nobody knows everything about us because we don't even know everything about ourselves. So whether it's uh, easy or an act of desperation, an act of frustration, a lack of resources, a, a, a not knowing where to go to get help and rectify a situation, I mean, all of those things are involved, but I, arguably it is it is pre-societal or proto-societal in, in the sense of, uh, even if our society didn't tell us we're supposed to help, remember the, the, the Boy Scout thing back when I was a kid, help an old lady across the road. Never say anything about helping an old man across the road, and then should help a whole, an old person across the road is what it should be. Uh, but do we need to be told that in order to have it cross our minds? Yeah, this reminds me of, of a, a comic that I saw the other day, bringing it back to the religious thing. And I, I think the comic said, um, if a threat of eternal punishment is the only thing that keeps you um, doing something right, then that's, you know, that's not, that's not faith. That's and, you know, it's intimidation. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so, I, I, yeah, I think that when we're looking at obligation, and like I think that you brought up, you did a very good job addressing that difficult question, right? Because it's easy to when you're looking at feral children to look at the children, right? But really, it's looking at the parents that are going to tell you what went wrong, whether there was mental illness with that person or or, or you know, desperation, lack of yeah, or yeah, what, what, all the possibilities. Right. There's yeah. there's many possibilities, and so. I think that there's that. So there's looking at the individual circumstance, and then there's also looking at the specific duty or obligation um, that's being addressed um, at a societal level. So mm -hmm. um, I think that in the case of feral children, people find that appalling because if you look across nature, you will see that parents generally take care of their young, right? But there are still examples of this happening. If there's a lack of food, right? some bears or wild cats will have children and eat them mm -hmm. right and that seems that seems terrible and primal but the fact is that that animal is making a judgment call that there is not enough food to feed these children they're going to die anyways and so and the instinct is to survive right so that obligation is different but if you look across nature as a whole you see an obligation to the young so if in human society, if you see young being abused, that's repulsive. But yet we live in a society, right, where a divorce rate is almost 50%. Now, if you look across nature, you do not see a high rate of monogamy, and especially in primates, right? It's not something that is technically sticks out. So if there's a violation of that obligation or a dereliction of that duty, um, People don't tend to frown on that as heavily as they would a neglect or an abuse of an offspring. Yeah, yeah. So, and and again, this and so that translates to jobs, right, or to religions, or any aspect you can think of where there's an obligation and a duty. I think you have to look at that section 
of of by itself isolated from other obligations and duties and then also the specific scenario that it's put into to determine what degree you know uh, like we were talking about the crusty police officer right <laughs> the, the the detective okay so normally we wouldn't look at that level of of duty to an obligation as something that's healthy right but if you look at it as protecting the safety of society as a whole right trying to bring down a terrorist operation or do these things then we we idolize it a little bit right because this this person is is neglecting their other duties their individual things in order to protect a larger segment of society if if that's what they're doing and so we're going to the it's it's a it's a lovely model but it's the detective um doesn't doesn't know how to maintain a personal relationship and isn't interested in that and got married and didn't really want to be married and just abandoned the family but says but i'm going to be a hero that's not laudable now what what's the detective may end up accomplishing uh, could could be award-winning but i but what's really for me the useful part of this this model that you've just created is the clashing of obligations because we we don't like to think about clashes in our mm-hmm. life and yet they are replete because how could they not be our political our social our our interior lives change from day to day and 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 so our obligations have to shift today you know any given day any given person uh uh, back a few years ago, a mom who needs help, mother-in-law who needs help. Uh, what if they both need help at the same time? It, uh, you don't just say, well, well, it's my mother, so I'm going to go help her. You've got to, how, how do I help my mother-in-law, right? It's, it, you, we wrestle with these things. We wrangle with them because we feel conscientiously, and maybe even deeper than that, the the obligation to that other human being. How about two soldiers who who this has been documented a number of times in a variety of wars, who both pull their guns on each other but choose not to shoot. Was that an obligation to a fellow human being that arose above the training? Was that uh, was that a uh, a moment that said, I've had enough, I'm not doing this anymore, I have an obligation to my sense of what is right. Yeah, so yeah, it's this complicated picture, right? Because if you have the crusty detective and, and he puts everything on the line for duty, we, we, we like that story, even if he's not doing it for the right purposes. If we had a fast food worker that did the same thing, nobody would think that that's a good thing, right? Like, oh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't care about my family. What I care about is getting the next person their burger, right? Right. So obligations and d- duties clash in these sorts of ways. And the soldier um, scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. or the mother and mother-in-law scenario, right? This brings that morality and ethics back into it. Um, okay. This this idea of where, where do these obligations stem from? What is required to have an obligation, right? Um, is it is it two parties? Is it, you know, what, where? Well, I think it is, I think it is two, two parties, even if both parties aren't signatories. <laughs> That's interesting. 
Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, said that the universe is under no obligation to explain itself to us. Well, because the universe isn't a party. Even if it is, even if there is a, if the universe is sentient, there is no connectable, <laughs> communicative uh, balance. There is no, it's not going to be signing of a contract. Things just are as they are, uh, which sounds very parental, doesn't it? Um, but I think there has to be two. How would I have an obligation if, uh, to anything other than myself if there was no thing beyond myself? So can you have an obligation to yourself? You can. That, that's back to the self-obligation. Uh, now, where it comes from, why, why do I want to keep myself healthy? Well, because the negative aspects of being ill are not kind, um, or scary, or are, and are inevitable. Entropy is inevitable, but we we've talked about that before in universal scales. But if I have a sense of obligation to myself, it is because I have developed a um, a perception. That myself exists. Now I'm treading right into the, now there are two parties. There's me, myself, and sometimes I. There's yeah. three parties, right? It's, if I can say, that's not who I am. I do something in a day and I say, that's not who I am. I'm talking about myself as a separate party, which means I've got some kind of construct in my mind about what I'm obligated to do to get back to that self that I perceive. There's still two things going yes, on. Yes, yes. And this is where people are going to get, they're probably scratching their heads a little bit, right? Because we talk about obligation. There has to be two parties. You can have an obligation to yourself. And people are probably saying, ah, this is contradictory. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. And actually, the most recent um, theories on consciousness actually posit that consciousness is not um, something that's happening in the present moment that we're having this free will um, effect over. <laughs> It's that consciousness is a memory system. So you and I are having this conversation, right? I'm not actually um, actively choosing what I'm going to say. What's happening is my brain is working behind the scenes. There's a lot of unconscious and subconscious things that are connecting. And then I'm saying them. And then after the fact, my mind is recording this as consciousness so that I can form a memory so that later on my mind can pull from that memory and make a different decision when we're having another conversation down the road. So two mechanisms. Right. There's, <laughs> there's, there's the I, which is actually a subconscious, unconscious thing that I have very little control over mm -hmm. that carries out actions and conversations. And then there's me, which is the reflective, Identity. integrative mem you know, memory system that post hoc, right? Um, parses through things and then makes decisions about the yeah. feed into the machine later. And it's not sure how it's going to come out, right? Because I don't have that level of control. And for a lot of people, that seems really counterintuitive or, or, you know, just violently against your experience. <laughs> but then when you think about the language we use, that wasn't me or I, you know, or you think about, I'd never things, say that. Right? Yeah. Things, yeah <laughs> things that you do that you, you apparently had no control over. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's these two things. Yeah. So if you need two parties to have an obligation, 
and you can have an obligation to yourself, technically, it does not violate the rules of what we know about nature or consciousness. No, it doesn't. And I'm going to complicate that even more, going to something we have occasionally raised. Given that each of us, each individual being, the the I, this body, houses billions of life forms. Uh, I is uh, construable as a colony, (laughs) a colony ship moving through space-time. Do I have an obligation to keep my gut healthy and all the things that inhabit that gut? Well, maybe that gut makes me Maybe I am, yeah. and because the research is showing this too, that that we are guided by viral, right? And so your your life path, right, could be determined could be determined by whether you feel an obligation to I or to me, right? If you feel an obligation to I, you will probably live a healthy lifestyle, and you will do things to support your physical organism. If you feel an obligation to me, then you're feeling an obligation to that thing that that controls things after the fact. And you might say, well, you want to know what? Me, that the conscious experience that I had, the memory that I had really enjoyed the taste of pizza, right? Even though I, the body, um, didn't really care for it, right? And so that brings us back to another interesting thing you said, which is that if you have an obligation, it doesn't necessarily mean that both parties agree to the contract, right? Right. And so this is a, a very... Um, evident place for this, right? I does not have um, a say in in what, and it actually kind of goes both ways. Neither one has <laughs> total say, right? No, me um, can look at things after the fact and try to inform I, but I might, you know, lash out, might do something that me didn't agree to. Let, let me show you. Let me, let me show you. Right. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I want to drive 90 miles an hour because I'm just really upset right now. Right. I, me, I'm putting I at risk because of that irrational choice. <laughs> yeah. And so, and we see that with other relationships too, like, like the parent child one, right? Like you mentioned, the child had no say in becoming a person, zero. So as a result, if the child grows up, and decides to act in a way that is the parents don't condone at all. Well, guess what? The child was never under any obligation to fulfill the parents' expectations because the child had no say in the obligation of being a child. Technically. And the child had no say in the in the chromosomal genetic structure. It all is given. Right. So it's really interesting. To, to look at it that way, do you think that an obligation necessarily disadvantages the obligated? So we've talked about it as being a bargain, right? And yeah, so a bargain yeah. implies reciprocity. And so I'm going to do this thing for you, and then you will do this thing for me. But do you think that the person who is obligated always ends up on the short side of that stick? I don't. But I think it's really complicated. I think it's really 
I'll take an, an example, and it may sound extreme, but I, I, I don't wish it to, but it is something that, that one encounters in, at a certain stage in one's life. Let's say that I have a, a friend of, 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 of a length of a lifetime, and that friend has decided, because of medical circumstances, um, that at some point they will end their life. If I construed my obligation to that friend as, no, I must protect your life at all circumstances, then I am overbearingly misinterpreting the contract. In this, I think this is just just as one example. If if I tell myself that I know best for friendship, which which is an obligation, uh, every relationship is filled with obligations, and they're willingly uh, uh, taken in, but they're also changeable. If if I think that I if I have the arrogance to think that I know what is best everyone around me, um, then I'm not really fulfilling the deepest um, uh, implication of that bargain. That's a really interesting example. There's a lot there because, um, first off, that's an example of you interacting with somebody else's I and me, right? Mm -hmm. You're interacting with the I of wanting to protect the physical body of this person, but with the me of respecting their wishes and and what they want as as a, a as a consciousness right, right. housed in this um structure that is no longer functioning you see yeah. and, and that takes us to a, it can take us to a spirituality that, right because it's introducing dualism right it is. and and dualism is is generally frowned upon in in modern science right there's a monism right so there is no there's no me it's ever you know everything arises from the physicality of the body and that's not necessarily contradicted by the i and me but it's complicated for sure it is complicated for sure because because obligation by its very nature is dualistic mm. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah this idea of the morality or the ethics or the the i and the me everything about it screams this this dualistic relationship yeah, yeah, so somebody that you have a relationship with and you do something and they say i never asked you to do that mm. that's that's a, a connotatively a negative potential situation but but they're also made, oh, you, you do something and somebody didn't ask it, but they, they certainly appreciate that, that you did. And that was the second interesting part of that example you used is that friendship is actually a mirror, right? So, so far, the obligations we've talked about have been of differentiated relationships, but friendship is actually mirrored. So, that negates my last question, which was, does obligation necessarily disadvantage the obligated? Because in a, in a friendship, right? There's, you're both friends, so you both have an obligation and a duty to each other that should be equal. And sometimes strains develop in relation in friendships sure. because one of them is interpreting that obligation and that duty to the other one um, in a different way. Yeah. And so as that manifests itself as, oh, well, I always do these things, and they 
never acknowledge it. Or I do these things and they don't, they don't do those things for me. Um, so that's the me in each person um, identifying those obligations and duties differently. <laughs> this has been fun. So <laughs> should people feel obligated to tradition or convention? Oh, well, that says should. The, the, the should is, is the implication of people who keep trying to maintain the tradition for whatever reasons they have to do that. Uh, a tradition is um, antithetical often to what one might uh, expect. It is, it is an artifice. Tradition is an artifice, which is why people have to hammer so hard on keeping tradition, because traditions will change if they're in an environment that welcomes change. Hmm. But traditions are often anti-change, and therefore not healthy in and of themselves. Right, right. And so humans have a lot of traditions, right? We're coming up um, in real life here on, on Thanksgiving, right? So there's a lot of traditions associated with with Thanksgiving. Convention is different from tradition, right? Yeah. And that might be more where the friendship model comes in. This idea of, well, it's conventional for a friendship, this mirrored relationship to have certain obligations and, and duties. Do you think that there should be a responsibility? People should feel obligated to uphold conventions no <laughs> that uh, I, I will be uncharacteristically rapid in, in asserting that because because conventions are related to traditions and while they may be laudable in uh, for, for some things they they utterly uh, can get in the way of the friendship yeah, you see, I think I'd probably hedge my bets a little bit more than you would, just because I'm thinking of the words you can put in front of convention, right? Okay. Legal convention, social convention. Ah, well, you didn't do that. No, I didn't, I didn't. <laughs> so I would think about that a little way, but I think in general, I would agree with you, because if we think about the, the parental paradigm, right, that we were talking about earlier, if even if the obligation doesn't change, the duties and the relationships, the conventional father figure does change over time so how how would you honor is there even a convention for looking at what a father figure should be over time no that'll probably change because it's all dependent on that individual relationship right if you have a child who has um certain disabilities right maybe that early parental role really doesn't change throughout throughout the relationship or if you have a, a father or you know a parental figure that that faces a mental rapid uh, a rapid mental decline over time yeah. or if there's a child becomes financially very wealthy early on there's an an innumerable number of things that could happen that would affect what we consider a conventional relationship so i think you're right i don't think that i think in general we shouldn't feel obligated to honor conventions. And I think traditions are, are pretty much flat out. I agree with you there. I think conventions might be a little bit more touchy, but I think there's so many things that can 
alter what is considered conventional that it, it it's mostly going to be impractical to to think of honoring. It, it, it is it is impractical because a society cannot uh, could not even if it really tried to because we see it happening in, in our we see it happening across the planet we see it happening in Iran we see it happening in our country in very different kinds of things where people want to bullet point what is allowable mm-hmm. and what is not and that never ever works yeah even though people wanted to, to, to scream and fall on that particular sword to use a phrase we were talking about or or this is the hill that i'm going to die on right well you can bullet point to kingdom come <laughs> and you're going to miss something well which takes me oddly to that little thing that i talked about with my, with my my uh nephew who was involved in in working with uh what do I want to say? Intelligent cars, uh, automatic. Yeah, uh, automated. Cars, uh, where where part of the programming job is to anticipate every possible thing that uh, a car might uh, encounter on a roadway. Hmm. That's an impossible task. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, man, this has been really fun, and we talked about it a little bit last week after the show. We're getting into some topics. I'm gonna congratulate us prematurely we're gonna hit um 10,000 listeners probably today um and so it's a big milestone right we're, we're we have been talking to you folks for a long time um you've obviously had a lot of interest in what we've said and some of the topics that we've been talking about recently you know as the show progresses we um run out of major topics right things that our philosophers have covered in the past not that we don't constantly refer to them and constantly reflect on these topics because they're ingrained throughout the things that we talk about. But as the show continues to go on, we're going to come across topics that don't have a huge amount of literature written on them by philosophers. And really the past few weeks, you know, obligation has some, um, but looking at failure or um celebration yeah celebration cynicism some of uh, cynicism had a lot but yeah celebration failure um some of these things don't have a whole lot of philosophical literature and that gives us the opportunity to um philosophize ourselves yes. right and i've been really enjoying the process <laughs> of doing this and i'm and this one was great because i mean if i looked at a, an episode title of obligation i might think ah, i don't know if i want to listen to this one but so many things have have popped out of that in this episode Mm -hmm. and uh it's been a lot of fun i'm looking forward to doing it in the future but until next time